You are listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Your host is Aradia. Welcome back to Broken Earth Spoilers, the podcast where I take you through a chapter of N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, considering all the implications of the chapter in context with the whole series, with frequent tangents into geology lectures. I am Aradia, geology and geography nerd, and I am excited to be back after yet another long break between episodes. Before we get into today's chapter, we need to start with a big old geology tangent related to recent events, i.e. the Tonga eruption, which I have now learned should be pronounced Tonga eruption uh, for reasons I will get into later. But TLDR, the yankification of non-English languages, is a mess. I have some very cool images um, of the eruption, both from on the ground or on the water, as the case may be, and from space. This was a very, very well-documented eruption, which is super, super cool for science, if not so much for, you know, people. Basic context. On the evening of January 15th, 2022, a huge volcanic eruption occurred in the Pacific Island nation of Tonga. The volcano is named Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapi. I'm butchering that, but I heard it on NPR at least three times, and I know they aren't doing any better. And it's been erupting periodically on and off for a few years, uh, generally underwater, building up a little uh, island just in the last couple of years. This eruption was a once-in-millennium-size eruption for this uh, seamount, basically, and it is now being considered the biggest explosion on Earth in the last 30 years, the beating out the 1991 Pinatubo eruption for sheer violent um, amazingness. So pretty exciting. Bombs are a thing. But um, as far as volcanic eruptions go, this is by far and away... Uh, well, it's about on the same tier as 1991, Pinatubo. Put out a lot less material. It's um, not going to affect the climate to nearly the same degree as Pinatubo did. But the sheer um, eruptive force uh, is beats Pinatubo. It just only lasted for like 10 hours, whereas Pinatubo erupted for days and days and days. So different volume. Pinatubo and this one are from the same basic part of the world and operating under the same basic geologic uh, settings. So I believe it is simply the duration of the eruption that makes them different in terms of their eff effects on the climate. So Pinatubo, I actually don't know as much about it as I should. Um, it erupted in 1991. It erupted for days, I believe. Like days and days and days of just continual eruption. And it literally arrested uh, climate change by like a degree for a couple of years. It was like a very significant like chance to field test some geoengineering thoughts because of the amount of sulfur dioxide that was put really high into the atmosphere. It actually did stop global warming for like two or three years. It just stopped getting warmer. <laughs> um, and then it all fell out of the atmosphere and we were back on our merry way. Uh, there's actually someone who I've met online through the Watt Spoilers uh, Discord server who was in some branch of the military in 
the area at the time and like witnessed the eruption firsthand and was part of the like initial response to it and to helping people get out of their ash covered houses and very cool little essay that I read. But yeah, it was the biggest eruption since like 1883 or something with Krakatoa. So it was a really big deal when it happened. So for this to be beating that is like, it's big. It's really big. So the amount of people affected by this eruption, I don't actually know. Um, I should know. I want to say it's like 10,000 people on the main island of Tonga that's being affected. And the nation has like 100,000 people. I want to say that I read that. The, I should have more maps of this. Um, the eruption itself, I believe, was like 10 miles away from the main like island with the capital city and all that. So, I mean, they're right there. Um, and this eruption, as you'll see in the, the satellite pictures, um, was a very wide eruption. It went laterally in a really, really intense way. I mean, I was looking at pictures and trying to like, you know, spot like where the other, all the islands in that area are. And it, it covers <clears throat> so, so many of them. Uh, <coughs> and one of the real issues right now, as I'm recording this on, you know, January 20th, is that we've really barely had a chance to get in there and see what's happening. Um, aerial photography is just now starting to show how devastating uh, the ash fallout is and like where the tsunami hit and it, there was a tsunami the one underground cable that they have to connect to the internet was severed by the eruption and will be repaired in a matter of weeks at best so the amount of communication coming out of there has been very very minimal uh, and that's been a really big struggle for people knowing what kind of aid to bring how many people have died we don't know how many people have died uh, if anyone's died, the only confirmed deaths have been in other countries from the tsunami. There have been three confirmed deaths, and none of them are from the immediate area just because we haven't been able to get there. So what happened specifically to make this eruption be what it was, was scientists think lots of science to be done on this yet, but scientists think that what happened is that seawater got into these magma chambers. So then you get all of that water flashing to steam and it just shattered the island that it had been building up. And that's part of why it went laterally so much. But again, this decades worth of cool uh, satellite or cool science to be done. Um, and part of that is because a bunch of satellites captured the eruption. Um, it's considered maybe the best scientifically observed eruption in history. Uh, we had geosynchronous satellites. We had orbiting satellites. Uh, we had a lot of different eyes in the sky watching in a zillion different wavelengths, uh, looking at sulfur concentrations, lightning distribution, air temperature, like all these things were just focused on that part of the world, coincidentally. So the eruption had, the volcano had been erupting um, since I think 2014. It's been gurgling and spurting, but most of that has been underwater. And I just in the last couple of years, it sort of came up above the waves and was making these kind of two little branches um, with a crater in the middle. So it was active. So there was, and it's the it's Indonesia. So obviously there's a lot of... Um, you know, volcano stuff happening all the time. But as far as this eruption giving specific warning, no, um, I don't think there was any. This happened uh, Saturday evening local time. 
is when this happened. So people were, you know, having dinner, coming home from church. Like, that's the stories of, like... And then there was a bunch of rumbling, and then the ocean was in our space. There were a couple of videos that came out, uh, I guess, before the the cable got snapped um, that showed water running, like, through church buildings and knocking down... Um, seawall barriers, basically, and people driving away. It was very frightening uh, videos. And then their internet went out. So that was a really, I woke up, you know, and like my phone is blowing up with all this stuff. And I'm like surfing through Twitter and there's just these two videos. And then we don't know. So yeah, it's going to be rough when we finally get a, a head count of how many people have died, how many buildings have been destroyed, how long it's going to take to rebuild. That is one of the really frustrating things about the recovery, uh, not frustrating, but difficult things, is that they have managed to have exactly one case of COVID this entire pandemic. And they don't want COVID to show up in their nation for obvious reasons, but getting in the food and the water and the equipment and the manpower, the medical supplies doing that in the pandemic with their amazing track record of not having the pandemic get into their country is going to be very challenging. The Australian government is kind of the ones uh, coordinating Australia and New Zealand both. They're the ones who are responding primarily. They are the jumping off point. And they have obviously made lots of commitments to, you know, we're going to follow all these protocols, blah, blah, blah. But it's they might be brought into the pandemic in a whole new way or suffer a much slower recovery. I mean, who knows what's actually going to happen? I don't think they've like even made contact with the leadership of the nation yet. So, uh, yeah, it has been the better part of a week since this happened. Yeah. They managed to land a flight on the airstrip finally, uh, today, which the airstrip had to be cleared by hand, uh, of ash before any airplanes were able to set down, but they were able to set an airplane down and drop off some water and stuff. Um, so this is a story we should all be keeping track of for more than a news cycle because it's an ongoing humanitarian crisis, uh, presumably. We don't even know. We just assume because it's a giant eruption. Um, I do highly recommend looking up videos uh, of the eruption from space because the really impressive part of this from space is that this eruption sent out a massive shockwave, massive, massive shockwave. Um, and you can see it in every single wavelength, every single type of data that you will find a video of. You can see the shockwave. It's, it's incredible. Um, it was heard across the Pacific. It was heard in Alaska and it was measured on air pressure gauges all the way around the world, like in Finland, like other side of the world. Uh, there was a distinct change in air pressure from this explosion. The, the, uh, 1880 something eruption of Krakatoa was considered to be the loudest noise ever. People were like knocked out of bed and, and freaked out by it uh, 700 miles away um, in the Indian Ocean when that happened. Um, this is probably on scale with that. I don't I haven't read any like decibel measurements of it or anything, you know, comparing those things exactly. But this was very, 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 very loud um, because steam, <laughs> water flashing to steam. It, it's it's a concussive force. 
I don't know how true this is, but I even read that there may have been waves created in other ocean basins from the air shockwave, like the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Actually, like you could measure in the water because the pressure wave in the air was so great. That was something I stumbled across in my research, which is uh, that's a lot of pressure change. Um, other interesting aspects of this is the ash went into the, it went about 20 miles into the air, which meant it went through the ceiling of where all of our weather happens. It went through the tropopause. So we are going to have high up in the, the very far parts of the atmosphere ash. So we might get some cool like sunsets or whatever. But again, unlike Pinatubo, which made interesting sunsets for like a year, uh, this won't last for very long because there just wasn't that much volume but it did go up as it went out very, very wide. And it also went up very, very high. So it was a lot of that. Um, the eruption did trigger a tsunami warning for the entire Pacific basin. And the only deaths that are currently confirmed happened because of those tsunami waves in other countries. Uh, not a very big tsunami, but even a small tsunami uh, fucks with currents really intensely. It creates very chaotic uh, disruptions to ocean currents. And I actually did watch a video from a town here on the Oregon coast called Neskowin, where you can see the tsunami wave coming in. Uh, it's a very distinct, if you've ever watched videos of tsunamis, they have a very distinct look. And yeah, there's a video of, of a tsunami just pushing up a creek in Neskowin, Oregon, uh, that I will have a link to. Uh, so it made it here. <laughs> we actually had a tsunami like get here, um, which it, it's it's pretty scary and it's pretty sucky. And I have a friend actually who was out on the beach that morning, you know, doing her vacation walk with her dog before checking into the news for the day because she's on vacation. And fortunately, it was low tide eight hours before, you know, she was out there roughly when the earthquake happened and tsunami obviously take about the they take about as long to cross an ocean as an airplane so there was many many hours before the tsunami actually got here but she was you know happily frolicking along the beach with her dog that day um and that's presumably how those three people well no i know one person died trying to rescue some animals uh, anyway, that's beside the point. But um, the tide actually, the tide was high here when the tsunami rolled in, so that gave extra urgency to like, uh, like if it's low tide, maybe the wave doesn't really go very high. Um, but it was actually high tide here, so I know that the Bay Area in California had some flooding. I saw some videos from there where it was like up into their port, like into uh, you know parking lots and stuff, like where the ocean doesn't normally go. Um, just because it was already high tide as as these series of tsunami waves rolled in. As the situation currently stands as of this recording, January 20th, 20th three deaths have been confirmed worldwide from the impacts. And the nation of Tonga has been almost entirely cut off from communication with the outside world because their underwater cable was broken by the eruption. Aerial images are starting to come in that show blankets of ash smothering towns. The airport where relief supplies were able to land had to be cleared of ash by hand first, and the water supply is actively being contaminated by ash. You may remember from the last recording where I talked about the Lockie eruption in Iceland and how it uh, had so much fluorine, fluoride in it that it gave people fluorine poisoning. Same basic issue is happening here, though with a different ratio of the specific elements, but you still have 
fluorine and sulfur and stuff like that that are interacting with the groundwater and creating like hydrofluoric acid and stuff. So the water supply is being contaminated. The soil is being contaminated. Plants are being poisoned. Um, all of that is is ongoing and getting water to people is going to be, you know, probably a big issue uh, as recovery for this happens. There are undoubtedly deaths that we have yet to learn of from the initial eruption and tsunami in Tonga. And there are deaths that may occur for months to come as food and water supplies are compromised and relief comes too slowly. And also, again, with the pandemic, do you invite COVID in or do you slow down relief efforts? That is a thing that they get to deal with now. And so we should definitely all keep this situation uh, in our thoughts and in our awareness for more than just a news cycle. It dropped off of trending within 24 hours um, very quickly because, you know, it's far away. We've got other stuff to do. So to that end, I would encourage all of you to find a way to contribute to relief efforts. And I don't care how you do that as long as you don't do it through Red Cross. Do not, do not support Red Cross. They will waste your money, line their pockets, and move cholera around the world just for shits and giggles. Uh, fuck the Red Cross. They're terrible. I, I mean, cholera in Haiti from the 2010 earthquake is a great example if you just need a real quick summary of why they're stupid, but just generally don't, don't do Red Cross. Being a Christian organization and being anti-reproductive rights, yeah, that, that checks out. Fuck the Red Cross. But you know who you shouldn't fuck, though you should maybe, you know, fantasize about it? It's that shirtless guy who was carrying the Tongan flag in the Olympics. Uh, he started a GoFundMe. And that is what I would encourage you to go donate to. If you don't have a uh, charity of choice that you know you want to contribute to and that you feel comfortable going through, I would just suggest going to the GoFundMe created by Peter Taufatofa. Taufatofa. I did try to look up how to pronounce his name, I promise. But the Tongan uh, flag bearer in the Olympics, who made so many waves for being shirtless and oiled, um, he has started a GoFundMe to create relief. And as far as I can tell, it's that's legit. Um, so go donate to that if you don't have a preferred charity uh, to donate. Um, Please give what you can, because just because we don't know how bad the mess is does not mean we don't know it's a big, big mess. Um, there, I will have links to stories about this in the show notes, um, both from a scientific standpoint and from a uh, humanitarian standpoint. Um, and that is my 20-minute rant about that eruption that happened this week, um, because how could I not address it? It is a season for them right now. There is a fifth season happening in the island nation of Tonga, which you may notice I'm not saying Tonga because when I tried to look up that guy's name, I learned that it, it, yeah, it's Tonga. It's, the NG is one thing that I'm not saying right. But anyhow, that is your update from the real world. And so we should probably move into chapter two of the Obelisk Gate because that's what we're actually here for. Chapter two of the Obelisk Gate is titled You Continued, because we are back with Essun, and we are returning to where we left off with the last book, which is the Have You Ever Heard of a Moon? That's where we're picking up again. So I'll just 
read this first paragraph as a sort of a read-in. A what, you say? A moon. Alabaster, beloved monster, sane madman, the most powerful origin in all the stillness, and in-progress stone-eater snack, stares at you. This has all of its old intensity, and you feel the will of him, the stuff that makes him the force of nature that he is, as an almost physical rider on that stare. The guardians were fools to ever consider him tame. So slamming you right back into this story. Um, and this is, it's an interesting interaction because they haven't seen each other, right? Asuna and Alabaster have not seen each other since Mayov went the way of the Hunga Tonga Huna volcano. That, that's what happened to Mayov, basically. Um, they haven't seen each other since then. And there's this great line here. He is completely the same, aside from being partially turned to stone, as in the days when you and he were less than lovers and more than friends. It's just, just in case it's been a while since you read the book, that's, that's the energy we're working with. And then he talks about how astronomistry isn't foolish, which is fun because he's saying astronomy isn't foolish, but the way that she's made the word and the way that this gets talked about in world, it's like he's saying astrology. <laughs> they approach this as astrology. It's a kook science. It's nonsense, but it's actually astronomy that he's really talking about, which is obviously a, a very real thing. And I love that they just don't understand astronomy and it's as weird as astrology is to us because they because they are taught to only look down because they're taught to never look up it's it's a deep programming cultural programming kind of thing <laughs> don't look up decent movie if you really like to laugh while you cry and set things on fire really enjoyed watching it aside from the nihilistic dread that it gave me but you know I'm a millennial. That's kind of my normal, the normal waters I swim in. So it's fine. Really fun performances. I really enjoyed it from a uh, performance perspective. <laughs> I just enjoyed it in general, honestly. So yeah, he, Alabaster doesn't really have the energy to explain astronomistry. And he's like, yeah, go talk to your geomist friend. I heard you came with one. Like have her explain it. It'll be fine. And it's hilarious because Tonky ends up not really understanding what alabaster is saying while also being one of the like worldwide experts on what he's talking about there's an incredible lack of connection there because it's literally she has studied obelisks and the sky and looking up her whole life and yet when she gets the terminology from alabaster she's like what is that that's not even what i'm talking about like they're in totally different worlds while talking about the same thing <laughs> it is the specialization problem where where you are talking around each other because you're too siloed off into your own particular area of expertise. This is a very wonderful and delightful thing about going through higher education. <laughs> People are like so siloed out. Um, you can have great conversations teaching each other what you consider the basics of your particular area of expertise. What Alabaster wants to know is can Asun reach out and talk to obelisks? That's what's really important for his mission. She's like, do not fuck with that shit. Do not have any interest in it. Um, but that's what he really wants from her. And there's this interesting thing where he, Alabaster yells at Essun for not having any respect for their craft. Um, he has a different relationship to Orogeny than she does. She pushes it away. She downplays it. She does not explore her skills at all. And Alabaster is like, well, you have the skill. So, 
do something with it. And she's like, I have respect for it. And he has no respect for that opinion. <laughs> You've only ever done the bare minimum to get what little tiny scraps you can from, you know, our overlords. And it's an interesting discussion that turns into uh, what I, in my notes, sort of termed post-fulcrum stress disorder. Because they're they're snapping at each other in these very specific ways, and then Alabaster's like, "And you leave and listen to your guardian," and Essun has to be like, "Shut up! You know why I listened? Because we were all tortured, we we're all gaslit and tortured, and it's it's just reminding you of all this stuff, and also bringing up the trauma that you then have to try to." consider forgiving Shafa for when he becomes Shafa 2.0 and he's having all these regrets about like the horrible things he did. He made these people like this. That is what Shafa and his people did. And it recaps the first book really well, in case you don't just binge right through them over and over again like I do. Did. I haven't actually done that in a while because I keep working on this project, which is a different process. But I did binge through like three times in a row. So, But yes, if you're reading the books with a gap between this reminds you all that exposition world building stuff. And then we get Essun saying, not knowing the word satellite, which I don't understand because they literally use the word satellite to describe the other fulcrums. There's like the main fulcrum and then there are satellite fulcrums. And she mentions that in the first book, but then she flubs the word here. And I don't know, maybe it's like one of those things where it's like, how do you dial 911? Because, like, 911 is a word. It's not a series of numbers. <laughs> Context um, matters a lot. I can't think of an example right now, but there have been some wild words that I didn't realize what I was saying. I just was saying the word shape, and then it's like, oh, break that apart, and it becomes something. So I'm guessing that that's what she's suffering from here is satellite. The fulcrum thing is not the same as satellite, the weird astronomistry jargon that Alabaster is spitting out all of a sudden. Um, they talk about the obelisks a bit, and we learned that obelisks are amplifiers of orogeny. That is what they do, as far as Alabaster can tell, which we learn in book three is not inaccurate, but it's not exactly accurate. Um, they are, they're kind of more amplifiers for, um what this book calls magic than orogeny, but it works on both because they're related things. It, this, it gets into metaphysics that I don't understand, but they are fundamentally orogeny amplifiers for purposes of the plot. And she thinks about um, the garnet obelisk that she uh, broke before the whole Mayoff thing which I found some really cool fan art um, that I want to share later in a different episode. But I found some very cool fan art of Hoa in the obelisk uh, that has come out since the last time I looked up fan art. Um, there's always more stuff when I go to look up fan art. So she thinks about that, which is, you know, cool reminder of the last book. But um, also it's funny because Hoa is in this whole chapter and she doesn't know yet who Hoa is. She knows he's a stone eater, but not that he's that stone eater she doesn't put that together until in this chapter ho was just being a child following her around and going with her places after he gets into that fight and gets all torn up and she has to give him his his crystal matrix that holds the rest of him then he turns into the stone eater from the obelisk but she won't learn that until halfway through the book i think so it's funny that she's remembering him here and he's walking around with her and she thinks that she knows all of his secrets now. And uh, <laughs> no, you don't, Essun. No, you don't. 
And then uh, Alabaster says, go get the topaz. He says, the topaz is floating around somewhere nearby. Try to call it tonight and we'll see if it worked in the morning. And if it didn't, then I have to move on to another plan. And so I looked up topaz because of course I did. And I have a cool picture of several gemstones uh, because topaz is one of those stones that becomes many different gemstones. It can have many different colors. It comes from many different uh, parts of the world. So there's a lot of very pretty gemstones. They are generally orange and yellow, but you can also like dye them and like irradiate them to make them blues and purples. Um, fundamentally, topaz is a fairly rare silicate mineral. It's got a Mohs hardness of about eight out of 10. So that makes it really hard. It's not diamond hard, but it is quite hard. Uh, very popular as a gemstone, very clear, has um, a, one plane of perfect cleavage. Topaz grows in veins and voids of igneous rocks like pegmatite, which is an intrusive rock where, where the magma is almost entirely done freezing into solid rock and the rock that you get out, pegmatite, is entirely crystalline. Like the crystals are an inch long or more. Um, so you can either find it there or in rhyolite, which is an extrusive igneous rock with extremely high silica content that is only partially cooled before it is erupted. And topaz is rare, as opposed to these, you know, pegmatite and uh, rhyolite are quite common. But this, but topaz is rare because it requires quite a bit of fluorine in order to form, and fluorine is what helps give it its color. And I don't have any cool pictures of it, um, but I do have pictures that I took myself of it um, in sample. It's just not very cool looking. Um, its distinguishing features are basically high relief. Uh, from that one perfect plane of cleavage. And it just sort of has these random spiderweb cracks in it, which I have a set of pictures here where you see it in one plane of light and then I polarize it and you can see all these white lines spiderwebbing through it. And that is from um, muscovite, white muscovite that is associated with it. It's not an alteration product, it's associated with it, but it's not very cool looking. Um, in terms of my mineral pictures, which is a bummer. I had hoped that I had cool pictures, but all I have is boring pictures. You have to go to somewhere like geology.com to find cool like gemstone pictures. Then Asun looks up at antimony because let us remember that if alabaster is here, remember we're in the infirmary, alabaster is becoming a stone eater. So antimony is there guarding him as I would any precious thing, which is so creepy, oh, so creepy. Um, and she adopts this very like classical Greek pose, you know, with like one hand sort of drifting out. It's one of those ones where like you could just like insert a smartphone into the hand and then it looks like a selfie pose. Like that's kind of how I imagine antimony is standing. Um, you can just imagine what a classical Greek statue looks like and that's what she's doing. As soon leaves and goes and meets up again with Hoa because Hoa and antimony are in a standoff. And so Hoa was kind of outside the room. And he is looking at Asun really sadly because she now knows he is a stone eater, which makes him sad. And she doesn't really care at this point. Everything's happening too much. It's too fast. So I think that the reason why the stone eaters eat people as they're turning is because this is a way of preserving them and making them immortal. I think as the person turns to stone, 
they're they are being encoded into into that rock and if the stone eater eats them they can preserve that material and then make a new stone eater once enough of them like once they've died effectively and enough of them has turned to stone they can bring their chosen person back and have them forever i think that's what's up with this process alabaster and then eventually Esun and eventually nasun turn into is all the same like a hard sandstone kind of thing. It's like a quartz aronite. It's really, really hard and really, really dense. And then every stone eater is made up of a different material. Like Hoa is like a black marble veined in white antimony. I don't even know what she's made of. She's clearly not made of antimony because that's a metal. But it's... The, the, the transmutation is not well explained. Um... Like maybe you kind of choose what material your constituent materials become in that birthing geode thing, um, and and how much like of their personality is getting programmed or lost as a result of how the stone eater like collects and manages and redistributes them. The DNA of the soul, so to speak, can be like captured in the crystal, moved to another crystal. Software. It's magical software, <laughs> uh, I think. Yeah, it's it's the singularity, bro. <laughs> uh, and it's weird how it's like they can eat a person and then still spit them out again, like as a complete person. Like somehow the stone eater consuming the stone doesn't meld the people, right? Alabaster we see at the end of the series is like his own person. Antimony still exists as antimony and then Alabaster is born as a new person. So it's not like they are, it's not like they are what they eat, right? Like they have like a special stomach or something where they just hold <laughs> the, the encoding crystals uh, for later distribution. It's stone eaters don't need to eat. They have no need of sustenance, but eating is a way for them to store that material to use. All of the stone eaters, since the, so there's six, right, when they start. And at some point, Hoa talks about our first efforts to create more of us were very ill-conceived, both literally and figuratively. And those first experiments, those first generations didn't go well, and then they refine the process into what we see in the books. Where do they get the spark of life from? Do they give it over? Does it come from some other source? Is it just purely electricity? Like, <laughs> so many questions. But it's happening to Alabaster, and we will continue to get to circle around it, and then it will be happening to Esun, and we'll get to be in her head as it's happening. Hopefully, as we continue to go through, uh, insights will pop up as we circle around this because something's going on. She's a very smart person. I just, Jemison is. I just don't know if she bothered <laughs> to, to actually think this out to the degree that my scientific brain wants to. So we exit the hospital and we move through the early night of the common Kastrima, which we learn is obviously not a light cued thing because Kastrima glows 24 seven. And so activity doesn't change on the same rhythms. Uh, but you know, the body clock says it's nighttime. So, uh, as soon 
exits the hospital and runs into Lerna, who uh, is also, I guess, waiting outside. And he uh, meets up with her to, I guess, I guess he wants to bring her to uh, Yika, probably, because uh, this is still just the first day, right? This is still only the first day in Kostrimo. Like, Asun hasn't even slept yet, I don't think. Or if she has slept, it's only been one time. Um, and Asun is just launches right into, I need to go to the surface. Like, I gotta go check stuff out because, you know, she doesn't tell him why, but she's she's like, I just got down here and now I need to go up again. Oh, so she did sleep once because she did the bath and then she met up with Lorna. So she has slept once. Um, so Lorna says, uh, you know, there's no way that they're going to let a newcomer go to the surface. The, the secrecy of Kostrima sort of demands that you... You can't just go lollygagging back up to the surface. Um, Asun promptly threatens to kill everybody in response, and Lerna's like, that's not cool. <laughs> Are you just going to kill us like Tarimo? Like, I'm not comfortable with this. And Asun is going through some really intense whiplash here because she's getting reminded of her old self from 10 years ago, back when she was cyanite. The mask of Esun is slipping off, and Lerna is right there to see all of it happening. And Lerna says, well, let's go talk to Yika. If we ask her, it'll be possible for you to go up and, and do that. And Esun thinks that's very reasonable. <laughs> and they go and do that. Um, and there's a passage here... You've spent too many years being thwarted and betrayed by other origins at the fulcrum. You know better than to trust her just because she's your people. You should give her a chance because she's your people, though. Which reminds me of a line that I've come across by being a fly on the wall in various um, black people spaces on the internet, which is, not all skin folk are kinfolk. There's uh, always people who will sell you out and betray you to the cause against their own self-interest, like... And I mean, you can think of examples of people like that, like um, Candace Owens, you know, like not working in the best interest of black people at all, despite being black. So because of the way that the fulcrum works, we know that that is um, extremely normal, that origins are looking out for number one and not for other origins. That is what the guardians and the fulcrum have really, really instilled in them is that you are alone and no one will help you. Which makes her have a difficult time with like, oh, I can I can't trust Yika just because she's an origin, but also like more than anyone else, she's gonna know what you're talking about. So that's sort of the tension that she's uh walking with here. So we go up to the uh head woman's home and there's a little bit of a line out the door, so they have to stand in line and wait. And we meet two very important characters, which would be Hyarka and Cutter. And I realized in this um, scene that the whole time last book that I said, oh, yeah, we met Hyarka in book one. We met Hyarka up at Kastrima over. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. This is our first description of Hyarka very explicitly. This is the first time that she gets met. So I think that the woman who I was misidentifying as Hyarka in the last book was actually Esni, who is the head of the the strongbacks in the the group. I, I just, I melded her with Hyarka and I'm sorry to everyone who was hopefully yelling at their phones 
while I was insisting <laughs> that we met Yarka in book one, because we don't. We meet her here in book two. And she is all over the place, uh, ethnically speaking. She's got some East Coaster and West Coaster. Her hair is ash blow with a bit of kink. Um, and she has her teeth filed, which is something that not many people do in this world. It's uh, been a bad reputation ever since the season of teeth, uh, when people filed their teeth, well, Sanzeds filed their teeth to uh, display dominance and their taste for human flesh. Um, but Hyarka has chosen to do that. She has that as an aesthetic look. That is a choice she has made. And she is very fierce and very scary and very wonderful and the future love interest of Tonki or the future pursuer of Tonki. Tonki doesn't really have love interests aside from, you know, <laughs> obelisks and astronomistry, but uh, she does end up partnered with Tonki later. And she introduces herself, Hyarka Leadership Kastrima, which gives Estun pause because she's like, is a leadership person not in a leadership role. And that usually is bad for community morale. And we learned that Hyarka is actually one of those people who refuses to be a leader, but she still keeps her, her caste name. So that's sort of a red herring. Like we learn throughout the series that Hyarka has no desire to lead. That's why she's in Kastrima is because she didn't want to be forced into leadership. Um, but at this point, it makes Asun worry that uh, Yika's control and leadership of this community is not very solid. It, it also does suggest that their social hierarchy follows different rules than Asun is used to. I mean, we've got an origin in charge, right? But she's still learning that. But it does set us up to go, well, this isn't going to be like every other calm that we've met or will meet in the stillness, which is cool. And the other person we meet is Cutter, who we don't get a name for until much later in the chapter. She just calls him Strawberry Hay Hair uh, for a lot of the chapter, which is fun. Um, he is also an origin, uh, a feral one, just like uh, Yika. And he doesn't really acknowledge Asun because it's one of those, like, my lack of acknowledging you is how I acknowledge you kind of interactions. And we get Lerna talking about how Alabaster arrived a few months ago and just he just appeared in the middle of the geode uh, through I'm assuming stone eater transfer rather than through uh, magic or orogeny well obviously not orogeny because he can't do it anymore uh, but they just appeared in the middle of the geode uh, Yika suggested you know oh we can just you know give you a mercy kill because the other option is to put you out because clearly you're dying and then Alabaster turned the geode off for a minute and after that Yika said yeah 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 you're fine we'll just we'll, we'll give you whatever you need it's cool and Asun says good call <laughs> he will kill you all just give him what he wants <laughs> sometimes when they have you completely by the balls you just give them what they want um, and Lerna uses the word still here which gives Asun pause this is again a signal that this is a different society than before because we have stills calling themselves stills. We have that vocabulary actually getting into the larger population, which it's again, just like, this is not, you are not in Kansas anymore, right? Socially speaking. So Alabaster has been here for months. That's kind of like the whole time that a lot of the travel has been happening, that travel montage. Alabaster was here just waiting for someone. 
And was there any way for him to know it would be as soon? Or was he just assuming that this is a place where lots of origins come? I will manage to find someone because statistics. I suspect the latter. He wouldn't have known where she was on the continent. To be within a few months travel of this place is like, why would... But at the same time, it's a pretty centrally located calm on the continent. And I mean, he doesn't even know if she was still alive at all. Um, but I think he just came here because he figured that if any origin who could do this would show up here. Presumably him and Antimony kind of surveyed the areas that they might be able to find someone at um, while also keeping his meat suit alive long enough to teach someone how to do this. Yika comes out of her house and says, all of you come in at once. I need to talk to all of you. And Asun doesn't want to. Asun wants to get on her mission and go about the next thing. But it's Yika's calm and Yika sets the rules. And if you want something from her, you're going to have to like come in and talk to her <laughs> in a group. That's just what it is. I found some very cool uh, fan art that I may have shared before of Yika. Um, on Twitter, it's just a beautiful fan art picture of her with this big mane of, of gray hair and her confident, strong face and all of that. So Essun thinks about how, oh, I should get some curtains because she sees that there's curtains in the house. She's like, oh, I should get some of those for my house, except I'm not going to stay here for very long, so I don't need to, except I don't know where I'm going. So maybe I am going to stay here for a while. So she's not sure where she's at and what her mission is. And then Yika goes, now you're part of my ruling council. I need you as an advisor. Asun is not prepared to be tapped for government positions on literally her second day in town, and she's not sure if she's staying or not. But Yika doesn't just want Asun. She also wants Hoa. She's already grabbed Lerna. Lerna's already on the council. That's a done deal. But she actually wants this random stranger who has strong orogenic abilities and a stone eater to join her council. And nobody thinks this is a good idea. Literally nobody thinks this is a good idea, except for Yika, because Yika is the correct leader for this extremely unconventional society that exists down here in the ground. And then we learn that hunters are a use cast that has been brought back into circulation. So hunters are, uh, what does she say here? She says, civilized societies don't need hunter-gatherers. So per imperial law, the hunter use cast has been depreciated. Nobody is born into it anymore, which is a cool piece of world building that like, there are use casts that can be brought in and out, but certain ones you aren't going to be born into them but they have had to reinvigorate this this use cast and people have had to be conscripted basically into a use cast because now you have to do hunting and gathering in order to survive because obviously a geode in the ground cannot grow its own food and cannot raise its own animals it's something that traditionally they had traded for and used kastrima over to manifest but now they have to hunt and the reason hunters get brought up is because they know the area nearby, but the travelers know the area farther away. And the important part of that is, so Essun thinks, I don't know anything about the season at all. I don't have nothing to contribute, but she actually does because she has been seeing this thing uh, a few roadhouses ago, which was the formation of these little clumps of people with a with the, the silk like wristbands, 
people are starting to coalesce into these little bands. They're starting to look around and say, oh, out of these 10 people, one of them is bright eyed and holding their weapon like they know what they're doing. I want to recruit them into my group. People are starting to coalesce between survivors and everyone who's just a dead person walking. And this has very big implications for the book, because that is all who ends up going to Renanus and becoming the army of Renanus, who comes to wage war on Kastrima uh, later in the book. So that is a present threat. They can't do anything about it, but Astun does bring that information into the mix of people are starting to head north. Well, not north. People are starting to gather. And then when they go up to Kastrima over... At the end of the chapter, the guards say, oh, we saw people heading north who looked like they knew what they were doing. And it's very surprising because north is the direction of the disaster, right? But we will learn later it's because Renanus is not that much farther north. And that's where there's walls, where there's food. And she thinks a bit about what's happening here because she doesn't know. I mean, the whole Renanus thing, only I know about Renanus. Everyone else in the book doesn't know about Renanus. But she has this thought here. Races and nations haven't been important for a long time. Communities of purpose and diverse specialization are more effective, as old Sans approved. What we're seeing is that this is a society that's been so globalized that um, what we might consider tribalism uh, really hasn't been a thing. It's really been all about imperial power. Um, but now people are going to start breaking down into simpler associations. Do you look like me? Do you talk like me? Do you believe the same things I do? And she even considers like, you know, maybe in a few years there will be communities that are grading people according to their appearance for who can get in and out of the group. Like obviously the Sanzid empire has had this standard of beauty that they've been imposing on people, but as the need to create nation bubbles and uh, racial bubbles again like happens like maybe people will be excluded from group membership just because they don't look right like that is how she imagines society might break down but it's, it's an interesting uh, perspective to imagine a world breaking down from utopia into racism given that our world um well our modern racism is different than ancient racism but we have never really had a utopia I mean, like, the Roman Empire is probably a great analogy for what the old Sanzid Empire was, right? Because the Romans had a very strong class system, very strong regional biases, slavery, but they didn't do it according to appearance. They had a very multicultural society with respect to uh, what we now consider the main markers of racism, right? You had black emperors, you had white slaves, like all of that, because racial divisions were not what they were or not what they are. They were not what they are now. And so I imagine she's riffing off of the Roman empire for describing how old Sansa was like, yeah, no, whoever's closest to the capital is who gets the most power. Whoever plays the game best is who gets the most power. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history and anthropology about how, um, class, caste, and oppression all work, and I am in no way <laughs> qualified to go into a discussion of it here. But um, Jemison definitely has done a lot of that research from a like human science standpoint. Um, and there's a lot of really, really good stuff to read out there about it. But I think that she's riffing off of the Roman Empire and its multicultural approach to oppression. Because um, they, they didn't mind enslaving everybody. That was fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> they were totally cool with absorbing people and enslaving them. Uh, and then she thinks about the fact that the only calm that she can go to as an origin with her daughter, who was an origin, would be this one. Right. She's like, well, well, maybe I could get into this cult, this calm or that calm, you know, if they want people who look like me. But the one unifying thing that nobody wants are origins. That is the only thing that puts you on the shit list for everyone, except at this calm. So maybe I should play nice and keep this calm from burning down. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe would be a good thing to do. So, yeah, Essun says, I know nothing about any comm, much less this comm, and how to run it. And Yika says, well, that's my job. You're just supposed to help me have a diverse range of opinions to make decisions with. And same, same thing with having uh, Hoa on the team. And Hoa's like, I mean, I can't speak for any of the other stone eaters. And we are not a part of your comm. I don't care. And Yika takes no shit from this little kid. And it's just like, you have an impact on my comm. And your special person is going to be a part of my comm. So you do have a vested interest in keeping my comm from falling apart. So shut up and give me your opinions, basically, is what she says. Yeah, we get our, our list of, of who we've got. We've got a leader, even if she doesn't want to lead. Another local Raga who doesn't bother to bite his tongue about how stupid he thinks I am. A resistant and a doctor who knows the road. And a stone eater. And Essun, who could kill us all. And uh, she, she says, you know, makes sense to give you a reason not to want to kill us all. And Essun thinks privately, well, if that's a qualification to be on your council, we should be inviting Alabaster. And then she wisely keeps that thought to herself because that would not be politically expedient. And then we get a story about uh, how Hiarka and Strawberry Hay, i.e. Cutter, both uh, came to this comm. So Hiarka has been around for a very long time. She doesn't think of herself as native Kastreman, but Yika is like, you've lived here long enough. Um, and then Strawberry Hay, Cutter Strongback, was born and raised here but was not revealed to be an origin until the rifting happened. So he has a recently altered position in the society, even though he was born and raised here. He didn't grow up flaunting it and having that be part of his identity the way that Yika had. We, we know that Yika grew up as an, an out origin, so to speak. And there's this whole thing about how Cutter wants to keep the name strong back, even though Yika really wants to adopt him as, you know, origin Kastrima. And it's a whole little interpersonal thing um, that sets up their relationship to be like, they have a lot of banter, they have a lot of history. And it's sad because she will end up killing him uh, for political reasons later in this book, I believe. Um, he kills someone in self-defense, I think. And then uh, Yika has to exert justice uh, by killing him back. And it's very sad because you see that they've been friends for a long time and they're some of the only origins in this calm who are of this calm. Um, so we're setting up heartbreak later with this now. So they have a meeting for a couple of hours um, or an hour at least. And uh, it's it's all about, you know, food and water and their infrastructure. And Essen's thinking... Uh, you've gone from thinking obsessively about one person to having to be concerned with many, like all in a day. Like that's a huge transition. She was concerned about a three person party. And now she's concerned about a calm of like 
I think 300 people. It's a lot of people. There's a complaint about how the, the hot water in the pools isn't hot enough because some people take very hot baths to cope with the end of the world, and they're mad that the water isn't hot enough, um, which, I mean, that's a mood. So the, the real problem that they have is being low on meat. That's the one that they're really not sure how they're going to deal with. Um, protein is a really important resource that they don't have the ability to manufacture. I mean, they do have mushrooms. They do have uh, like a fungus that they can grow, but it's, it's not the same thing as like all the B vitamins of meat or the cholesterol of eggs. Like it's a food issue. And yeah, they don't have a Greenland in the calm and they had never quite gotten around to getting some good soil uh, imported from another calm, which they could have done in the years before the season that they spent bickering about if they should do this or that infrastructure upgrades to Kastrima over. It's a classic case of bureaucracy being sideswiped by a natural disaster. Uh, and yeah, Yika's basically like, I don't know what we were thinking trying to live down here. We are not equipped for long-term survival down here without animals, without pasture, like, what are we going to do? That's kind of the big issue um, that the council is struggling to deal with. So the meeting kind of hits this impasse of this is a problem and we don't know what to do about it. And Asun decides to break the ice by saying, I need to go, Topside! And that's very abrupt and nobody wants it to happen. Yika requires an answer about that. Essun skirts around it a bunch. She really doesn't want to talk about it with anyone. She especially doesn't want to talk about it in front of Stills. Uh, Yika's very annoyed at Alabaster's existence because not only is he consuming all their medical supplies, he's now inspiring people to make ridiculous requests. And uh, Lerna points out that the medical supplies are one thing they don't have in short supply. Apparently, he has an easy way of manufacturing penicillin, despite all of the deprivation. Penicillin is not hard to make for his level of medical technology, which I did actually um, look up if you can make penicillin yourself, because I wanted to know, like, what kind of technology would he need to do this with? Um, and it is actually quite possible to make penicillin at home, not to the degree that you should be using it. Uh, refining it, making sure you have the right strains, having the right purity, like that is something that is way beyond like you and me in our kitchens. But because penicillin is bread mold, it exists everywhere. You just need to know how to cultivate it. So clearly Lerna's medical training and Kastrima's medical equipment is such that he can manufacture penicillin um, fairly easily, which is, which is fun. It's fun to know that that's a thing. It's like they're not down to, you know, pissing on wounds or whatever. Like they still have like actual antibiotic medicine to work with. Okay. So then Yika says, oh, so he has 10 rings. Are you a 10 ringer as well? Essen responds, I wore six rings once, which shocks Lerna. Lerna has figured out that she's an origin. He had no idea she was fulcrum trained. Despite, every, again, like she doesn't know everything about Hoa, Lerna does not know everything about her. He is shocked to learn that she was actually from the Fulcrum before the life that he saw her live. Essun really, really doesn't want to talk about stuff. So Hiarka and uh, Cutter take off from the meeting, but Lerna refuses to leave. Lerna's like, no, I deserve this information. So Essun gives a decent summary explanation to Yika that I need to uh, do, a, do a final lesson from this guy. And Yika's response is, all right, I'm coming too. 
which like immediately Essen wants to scuttle the whole thing. She doesn't want to show this to anyone. This this whole chapter is a series of Essen setting up hard lines in the sand and then having to just cross them anyway. That's this whole chapter is her being like, no, and then fine. <laughs> um. Because, yeah, uh, Yika really wants to see what a fulcrum six-ringer can do. She's curious. She she is someone who takes pride in her craft. It's really a shame that she couldn't make friends with Alabaster and get his lessons because she would be way more responsive to his attempts to teach. Um, obviously, her skill level, her strength, her knowledge would not work. But her attitude, way more appropriate for a student than Esun's obstinacy. Yeah, Essun does not want a self-taught feral origin attempting to connect with an obelisk. Turns out there's not going to be a concern of that. It's far too complicated. But she almost scuttles this whole mission just out of fear of, of what would happen. But doesn't matter. Uh, Yika has her, her animal intimidation tactics with her hair and her attitude. And Essun has to back down because Alabaster needs her to do this thing. And Yika will not take no for an answer. And we get a very important insight that you'd think would be obvious, which is that uh, orogeny is not about rank. It's not about how many rings you wear. It's about your skills. And Yika has to keep pushing this point of like, you don't know what my training is. You don't know what I can do. Stop assuming that because I didn't go to a fucking Ivy League college, I'm not smart, basically, which is fair. <laughs> it's very fair. It's funny, too, because... You know how the whole world is, uh, you know, don't look up, don't look up, don't look up. Yika has been looking up, apparently. When Essun says, well, it's about the obelisks, but don't think about it, Yika goes, interesting. Not, oh, what do you want with those weird old relics? She goes, I've always wondered what's up with them. Let's go check it out. So, again, she's very different from most people. She's got an almost tonky-like curiosity in the sense that it doesn't matter if she's been told not to care about something. She has thought about it and uh, her enthusiasm scares Asun. Asun is not pleased that Yika is so interested in all of this stuff. Uh, so they go up to the overlook so that they can take off. Uh, Yika just gets together a couple of guards and the whole team takes off hiking upwards, which uh, is very physically strenuous on the Kastrimans. Uh, Essun is in fine shape and Yika's in decent shape, but all those strong back guards that they bring up with them struggle because, you know, you're climbing up several sets of stairs to get to the surface. And they get up to the, the gate, Kastrima over, and they get to a different false basement than they were in before because, of course, there's multiple entrances to get into Kastrima. It's a very clever decoy town gate thing. And they go up up top. Asun gets to see the season in a whole new light because it's, uh, you know, she was traveling through it as it developed. But now she's spent maybe 24 hours below ground. And when she comes up, she actually notices the sulfur scent of the air for the first time in weeks and weeks. She notices how the air is has this silvery haze in it. She hears the soft patter of ash landing. It's She's gotten so accustomed to it that coming back to it after a break is shocking. Like, oh, I was really walking through this and adjusted to this. It's a very surprising uh, reality check kind of moment. I actually got a um, picture of a 
city in a city called Laurel in the Philippines, uh, just of, of buildings covered in ash, just for illustration purposes. That's kind of about the amount of ash I'm imagining is all on the uh, surrounding, on Kostrima over. Um, so the buildings are mostly not collapsed yet, but she ends up hearing them kind of creaking and popping as they slowly are getting crushed by the ash because ash is, you know, rock. It's very heavy, so you know how snow can uh, crush things with not that many inches of, of snow, and then the roofs of buildings and stuff start to collapse if they're not built well. Ash is much heavier, and it doesn't melt uh, over time. So when you have ash fall that's just coming out of the sky for days and days and days, like in the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, people had to like go up on their roofs and shovel the snow off the ash off for fear that their houses would be crushed before the eruption was over. Very real problem. Um, and super crappy. And this is when we get the, the news that there are people traveling North, which everyone thinks is surprising, which I talked about before. That's, they have a destination in mind. They have a group membership. They are going to Renanus and they will be heading back to slaughter everyone in Kostrima in a few short months. And so Esun considers if she should do this, if she should try to do whatever Alabaster wants her to do, should she try to connect to an obelisk? The last two times she connected to an obelisk, she almost died. Alabaster kind of is destroying the world. There's a lot of like, should I follow through? And then she thinks, but he's one of the only people who's never hurt me. The world hurt me, but he never has. And the world is honestly a piece of shit and should be destroyed. And Alabaster maybe deserves a little bit of trust for knowing what he's doing. So she kind of works through that. And then she starts to look around orogenically. And she, you know, thinks about the earth. And then it's like, no, 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 don't look down, look up. And then there's, a, there's a line, there's actually enough ash in the sky that you can sort of grasp the clouds with your awareness. So it's not strata in the earth and it's not minerals and seawater but it's kind of the same thing well it's a lot like minerals and seawater actually that we saw in book one she talks about how you can actually grip the minerals in seawater to an extent the air is so full of rock that the same kind of thing is happening so she's kind of looking around there's some banter among the castremans and then she you know finds something and she turns to face it because you have to face the obelisk. You don't have to see it, but you have to be pointed at it. Um, and she finds something that is very dark because I think the reason why they have to face the obelisks has to do with the intentionality of it. Like the obelisks are almost sentient and the one that she's about to tap in the book is very much sentient. The, the, Onyx has a sentience to it, but all of them have a certain amount of, of aliveness and intelligence. And so I imagine that eyes are the windows to the soul. Your, your intentionality comes from the, your front facing self. Um, maybe it's just that faces have to face faces. All the obelisks have faces because that's how crystals work. But I, I suspect it has to do with the, the sentience and intentionality of the human and the obelisk. Like presumably the obelisks themselves turn to face you. I would assume that they rotate to face you, even though they don't have like human faces, they have a sentience to them. So 
I don't think crystals have a front. I mean, I don't think they're described as having like a side that's preferential in terms of the other ones. Um, the onyx is actually a cabochon, which is like smooth and round the whole way around. Other ones are described as very jagged. So they don't have a front in that sense. Yeah, I think it just has to probably do with like windows are the eyes of the soul. And this is a very like soul connection kind of thing. So you have to look at it. The line she uses is lines of sight, lines of force. So that's just sort of like a rule of this is that lines of sight are lines of force for whatever metaphysical reason. But that is a an axiom that she returns to again and again as uh, our origin characters do their thing. But yeah, she uh, thinks that she's looking for the topaz and then she finds something very dark and heavy. And it turns out it's the onyx, um, which uh, is, uh, yeah, she found the control capuchon, the central crystal, the one with the most energy bound up in it, the one with the most sentience. And uh, she wasn't supposed to get that one first. Alabaster wanted her to go get some of the foot soldiers, not the general. But um, she picks up a lot of obelisks on the way back from this. She she hears them, uh, other obelisks buzz along the periphery of your line of sight. But this is the one that responds. And she is pointing to one that's like probably almost halfway around the world. Um, she can feel how far away it is and she can feel it it turns with this intense blast of sound and energy that like hits the ocean underneath it like she just like suddenly connects with it and knows that it's like exploding almost like like a meteor exploding over the surface of the ocean just like pushing on the ocean and turning it um as it turns to face her and turns to start coming and she says she says it's gonna take months for it to arrive, but oh boy, it's coming. And she kind of um, tags a couple of other obelisks on the way back, particularly the topaz, um, which she describes as lighter, livelier, closer, and somehow more responsive, perhaps, perhaps because you perceive a hint of alabaster in its interstices, like a curl of citrus rind added to a savory dish. He's prepped it for you. So that's interesting she grabs like a whole double handful where he had her just like he's like here's a little training obelisk and she you know massively overcompensates and goes way into it she also has a thought on the prior page that the garnet the one that she rescued Hoa from was broken and mad and she's not sure why the word mad would occur to her i think it's partially because it's broken and partially because Hoa was in it right like that whole thing was super it was in a kind of like purgatory some sort of arrested explosion um, for however long with Hoa stuck in it. And then when she gets to it, it's like, it's insane um, because they're sentient and she doesn't know that they're sentient yet. But we kind of learned that so many souls got poured into them that like they have a certain sentience. And that's really the thing with the Onyx, um, particularly at the conclusion of the trilogy when Nasun gets given control of the Obelisk Gate and all of that hope and fear and terror and all of that boils down to uh, final commands loaded, yes or no. And that's that final confrontation sequence. It's because the Onyx has a level of sentience and it's mad. The Onyx carries the trauma of what happened, the genocide of what happened to the Thneus, and it carries the trauma of all the horrible experimentation that happened to the prototype origins, Hoa and the other five. It 
and all of their compatriots who were put into the briar patch and fed into the system. Like the onyx has captured that energy and trauma and has awoken to its ability to be mad about it. That's why it is willing to participate in what uh, Hoa, Esun, and Nasun want to happen is because it, it wants to destroy the world too. It has It is not the same anger as that of Father Earth, but its anger is pointed in the same direction as that of Father Earth. Oh, they have both been violated repeatedly by the same people for however many thousands of years, but nothing fucking changes. Yeah. So Esun snaps back into herself and asks Yika if, you know, did you did you get anything useful from that? And Yika is like, I kind of followed, but I don't really know what happened. Um, and she asks, what would happen if I tried to do that? And Esun's response is, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that you would short out and self-immolate instantly. But I'm going to cover that up and say, I don't know. Um, because yeah, she would just be overloading, like overloading a resistor in an electrical circuit, which is, she would burn out. Um, and we get an explanation in here at the chapter, uh, you know, about batteries and what battery technology exists. And that's kind of the analogy she uses to get through to Yika. Like, do not, you are not rated for this level of power at all. Um, and you know, it's it's enough for Yika to say, okay, I, I understand that you're not just warning me off because you're an elitist, you're warning me off because literally I would burn up and die. And that would be not great for the leadership of Kastrima to do. And then we also have Lerna thinking about all of this, which makes Esun very uncomfortable. She doesn't want Stills thinking really hard about orogeny business. Um, turns out he's thinking about something a little different than what she thinks, but you're just getting that tension of like, Lerna's interested in this. Yika is interested in this. There's all these like fulcrum secrets and all this origin training and all of the secrecy that keeps getting busted open by these characters in this city. And that's really uncomfortable for her to have to be open and to have to share that information. But that's what she gets to deal with for the rest of the series because it's a season and there's no rules anymore. Specifically, Lerna is thinking about the similarities between obelisks and Kastrima which is that they are ancient and powered by origins, <laughs> just mysterious origin-powered things, and he is relying on for his life on one of them and turns out will be relying on the other as well. So it, it makes sense for him to be thinking about it. As soon gate keeps really hard, which is annoying. <laughs> I understand why, but it's annoying. And there's also the whole thing about how stone eaters are really interested in origins that can control obelisks. Like there's just all these connections that Lerna, much like Tonki, is like, there's there's something here. There is some insight that might save us if we if we pay attention to this properly. And then Hoa goes and discovers something very scary, which is we will learn the boil bugs. Um he goes over and looks at this pile of ash that has some like desiccated animal feet and bones sticking out of it. You know, Asun looks at it, it's like, oh, it's kind of weird that, you know, a creature would die and then have so much ash mounted over it. And I think that's because the boil bugs are starting or some other creature like the boil bugs. Um, they're starting to get going. And Hoa is examining that pile going, oh boy, oh boy, there's, there's more dangers out here than I thought. 
for my precious human and I need to protect her. And he says, you know, we should go inside. And she's like, wait, why? You weren't afraid of, of anything. And he says, I'm afraid of things that will hurt you because he cares for her as a person, but also he cares for her as a tool to achieving the end of this long, long, long process that he set in motion 40,000 years ago. She is a critical piece of the circuitry and he can't have her being eaten by fucking insects at this point in the story. I also got a very cool picture of um, a topaz agate because the topaz as topaz agate of the onyx agate uh, in the, in the book, the onyx is just a solid black cabochon. It's just black. And, and I've got pictures of it before. It's, it's very uninteresting, but onyx are a variety of agate. And so I did get a very, very cool picture of um, a white and black stripey, like agate chunk, uh, all polished and it looks very cool. It's not at all like the cabochon that she picked out from the sky. It's not an obelisk, but um, onyxes are agates, which is, you know, I've talked about them before. They're water precipitated silicon dioxide and other stuff uh, that fill up cavities in rock and create very, very cool layers of minerals um, and yet look very cool when cut in cross section and polished. Uh, highly recommend owning some of those if you can find one from a not horrible source. They're super cool. And yeah, there's this, one of the final things about this chapter is uh, she feels, Esun feels very touched by the fact that Hoa is protecting her. Like she's been thinking of protecting him this whole time because she thought he was a human child and so on. And then she realizes that he's trying to protect her and she's basically never been protected by anybody. Right. There's a less than the number of fingers on one hand, number of people who have ever actually protected her. And so that's a very, that's a new twist on their relationship. Right. And she, you know, reaches out to stroke his hair and the line is something comes into his eyes that is anything but inhuman. Really getting into the nature of sentience, humanity, emotion, like what, where, where is the line between human and non-human? Where is the line between a machine and a person? Like these are questions of identity and questions of the intrinsic nature of life that the books really deal with by examining how horrible people can be both to each other and to their scientific experiments. But Hoa cares about her as more than just a tool. Um, he does care about her as a tool primarily, but there's, there's a relationship that's starting to develop there. Um, and it's, she needs it so badly that it happens. Um, cause there's just no one who's ever protected her much less effectively. You know, Hoa might by far and away be the most competent protector she has ever had in her life. And yeah, then they, uh, all go down into Kastrima. So that way Asun can report her, the results of her experiment to Alabaster. He might already know what she did. Um, but yeah, she needs to go back down and talk to him. And that's where the chapter ends aside from our tablet reading, because of course there's a tablet reading at the end of the chapter, which is before gather into stable rock for each citizen, one year's supply, 10 rollets of grain, five of legume, a quarter trade dry fruit, a half store it in tallow cheese or preserved flesh. Multiply by each year of life desired. 
after, guard upon stable rock with at least three strong-backed souls per cache. One to guard the cache, two to guard the guard. Tablet 1 on Survival, verse 4. Not a lot of metaphysics to be gathered from that. That's just some basic uh, administrative planning, but it is fun the language of multiply by each year of life desired. Like it's just, it's a very bureaucratic, uh, like cold calculation. And then the three guards. Well, first of all, three strong backs. You're getting the strong back used cast. You know, there's, there's that phrase of strong back for guards, but also like you got to guard the guards. This is a very, this is a very, it's cold, it's calculating, and it's practical. It's efficient. It's self-reinforcing and resilient. You can't have warlords rising up hoarding the food if two-thirds of your basic guards are there to keep each other from doing that, I think is the theory. Um, because seasons are really common, and you need to make sure that resources get managed equitably for the survival of the species. You can cut people out, you can prevent them from coming in, but you can't have people just degrading into warlordism until the world eats itself alive. That that will not do to repair the empire. So that's uh, it's it's a very cold, brutal world that has managed to survive Father Earth's wrath since the fall of the. Uh, Still anagist. That's what it is. Yeah, so uh, the people have become even worse than normal uh, since the fall of Sil anagist because of how brutal the world is. It's very cold. It's very efficient. Um, and that's this tablet reading gives us another little insight into how how you can boil down people's lives into specific units, specific values, and specific mechanisms. Um, which is frightening and very real to life all at the same time. So that is all I have to say about this chapter. I hope you enjoyed my perspectives. I hope you learned something. And I hope you have even more respect for N.K. Jemison's writing than ever. Please remember to follow the podcast on social media at B.E. Spoilers. Give the podcast a rating in your podcast app. Consider donating to the Patreon and go drink some water. It'll help move ions through your meat suit, which is important. Bye. You have been listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers podcast, a Fox and Raven Media production. Connect with us on Discord and social media. Rate us in your favorite podcast app. And remember to support us on Patreon. Patreon.